John Axon was a railway man to steam trains born and bred. He was an engine driver. What radio is absolutely brilliant at is engaging with the emotional aspect of our lives. And the other thing that's absolutely brilliant at doing, engaging with the emotion too, is music. And if you can bring the two together, then you're composing radio. Lost his life upon the track one February day. We present The Ballad of John Axon, the real life story of a railwayman told by the men who knew him and worked with him and set into song by Ewan McCall. What they brought to radio that evening in 1958 was the understanding that radio could be a wonderful way of telling a story with all the instruments musical, vocal, poetic. In a class eight locomotive from Buxton. It's like hearing a symphony orchestra if you've only been listening to string quartets. To chapel on Frith, his steam brake pipe did blow. When the ballad of John Axon was first broadcast on July the 2nd, 1958, it's not too much of an exaggeration to say it changed the face or the sound of radio. I'm Sean Street, and 50 years on, I'm standing on the platform at Chapel Lonley Frith Station near Buxton in Derbyshire, about to begin my own journey into the making of the radio ballads. The station's quite a remote place, surrounded by trees, with the old station buildings now turned into a rather nice restaurant, boasting fine dining. Little evidence here today of the horrific crash which railway worker John Smith witnessed. Indeed, he was nearly a casualty of the accident himself was among the first to find John Axon's body. I was a fireman and we'd worked a train to Manchester, so I was travelling home passenger with my driver and we stopped at Chapel in the Frith. And while we were stood there, the signalman said there was a train running away, no brakes at all, and they just hit and they all piled up in the station, five or six stacked high to be there on the platform and hear the crash and the bang of pieces of wagons and everything that's flying wheels flying past you. I just tried to get out of the way of them. Melanie Axon, granddaughter, John Axon. It's quite eerie because it's always really quiet when I've been here and I think of the noise and then the quietness that must have been on that day. There's a train coming in now. Standing here on the platform and looking up the line, you realise because that's the, that's the direction your grandfather's train would have been coming from. You, you realise what a slope there is actually on the line and how fast that train must have been going out of control when it, when it got to this point. I always find it amazing that the only thing that remained standing was the signal post. It's hell on the plate, it's a funeral plate, oh Johnny. It's the end of a dream in steel and steam, oh Johnny. There's a world in your head and your joy's the shed and there's life ahead but you'll never see it, Johnny. Those were the original photos that somebody took on the day of the, the accident. Day. He was also a railway man, and he said he'd like us to have them because he'd had them all these years, and these are the actual wreckage. Horrific. It was a story which captured the imagination of BBC producer Charles Parker, 
as his colleague, the late Philip Donnellan, remembered. I was an assistant producer and I was warned by somebody, that chap Parker, he's rather, he's rather difficult. He came into the office one day and threw a paper on the desk. He said, that would be a great program. And it described the story of John Axon and the award of the uh, George Cross. Parker was right, of course, and the success of The Ballad of John Axon was the beginning of a long collaboration with McCall and Seeger. It was the first of eight ballads in eight years, exploring the lives of communities through voices which until then hadn't been heard on radio. After Axon came road gangs building the M1, herring fishermen, coal miners, boxers, polio sufferers, teenagers and gypsies. So popular did the ballads become that three of them went on to be made for TV. The reaction to the first one, though, was somewhat mixed. Judging by some of the listeners' letters, here's one from a listener in Bristol. Sunday evening I was listening to the wireless and I heard the most horrible thing I've ever heard. It was about the death of a very brave man. I happened to be the wife of an engine driver and was utterly disgusted. Instead of being a serious affair, it was like the turns on the old music halls. And another letter which had at least some qualified praise for the programme. As a rule, I hate this type of music and discordant effects, but this is in a class by itself. And finally, just one line from a listener which said, unquestionably, a production of genius. It was 4 a.m. that Saturday, John Axon left his bed. The critics were equally enthusiastic. The Observer said, and I quote, Last night, a technique and a subject got married, and nothing in radio kaleidoscopy, or whatever you care to call it, will ever be the same again. While the Sunday Times critic wrote, It was as remarkable a piece of radio as I've ever listened to. It was not only skillful, it was honest. And even 50 years on, Gillian Reynolds, now radio critic for the Daily Telegraph, believes that the ballads have stood the test of time. Gillian, if you were to hear a radio ballad now... It would be like when I heard it the first time anyway. I would think, oh dear, I can't bear that preaching tone of you and McCall. I would think, oh... The instrumentals are really quite interesting. And my heart would leap up at the people. John Axon was still on board, and the guard of the train that had been it, we didn't know what had happened to him. We found the guard's bag and his coat and everything was underneath the engine, and when everything had cleared, you know, the dust, and because there was a lot of lime dust, we were all white with lime dust, uh, we set to trying to see if we could find John Axon. We got on the footplate and... Of course, the tender was empty and all the wheels were in the cab and we shoveled the coal away and shoveled the coal away and we found what we thought was his body. He was down in between the engine and the tender. One of the extraordinary things about John Axon is that they get it right first time, for me. Hello, Bobby. It's very confident. Yeah. And Peggy says, well, we were just making it up as we went along. Six, eleven bucks, son. 
Andrew Johnston was a 16-year-old schoolboy when he first heard the ballads. It is remarkable that right from the start they seem to have it. He was so inspired that he wrote to producer Parker, who invited him to visit the BBC studios in Birmingham. Later, Andrew went on to work in television, but he never forgot that visit, nor lost his love of the ballads. Peggy Seeger is the only one of the three still alive. Parker died in 1980 and McCall in 89. The fact was that it needed all of us to make what it was because everybody was pushing boundaries. Now 72, Seeger was born into a musical family. Her mother was a talented pianist and composer and her father was the eminent American folklorist and academic Charles Seeger. In 1958, she was in her early 20s and having an on-off affair with Ewan McCall. Both he and Parker needed her musical talent and her skill on instruments like the banjo. Ewan created the Ballad of John Axon out of songs that already existed, an awful lot of them. The one that most people remember is the opening one, uh, which originally was, Harry Sims, he was a union man, two unions born and bred, you know, and it went right through the killing of, of Harry Sims, the murdering by the, uh, by the vigilantes. Um, it's a song of mourning. So that's what was happening in the Ballad of John Axon, is that he was being celebrated and mourned at the same time in the way that, that folk people do. Ewan McCall had emerged as a songwriter and a folk singer from left-wing political theatre. The way the musicians and the technicians seated together make their individual contributions, this is a very satisfying thing on a whole series of different levels, but perhaps in the, its most important aspect is the fact that this, in a way, is the folk process mm. uh, dovetailed into a very, yeah. very short period of time. In the 1930s, McCall, then going by his birth name, Jimmy Miller, had been an actor and writer with street players like Red Megaphone. He met a young actress called Joan Littlewood, leading to a successful theatrical collaboration, but a not quite so successful marriage. How much Littlewood's later productions like Oh, What a Lovely War owe to his early influence isn't clear, but there's no doubt McCall understood the dramatic power of mixing actuality speech with music. Ewan was the one who saw the whole layout of a radio ballad after listening to the talk. Once the interviews were done, he had a drama view of it, and Charles was a producer and editor. It's using spoken language as raw material for creation. This is a very sort of, like, this is perhaps the most outrageous statement I will make here, but in fact, that is what I'm now convinced I'm doing when I'm editing on a tape recorder. Charles Parker was equally caught up in the poetic power of the interviews. In the Charles Parker archive at Birmingham Central Library, there's a recording of one of his lectures several years after the first ballad. I can tell the fact that in this there is a truth. It's a truth that's been brought home to me by the microphone. Listen to the words I record. These are the words of, of people speaking. Come here. Railwayman, it was a tradition, it was part of your life. It went through, railways went through the back of your spine like Blackpool went through rock. Then you also have these very rich speakers who come up with these wonderful turns of phrase. And the one everyone remembers, of course, is railways went through the back of your spine like Blackpool went through rock, which is a vivid, lovely image that hasn't come out of a book or a script. It's just, it's folklore, isn't it? It's as modern now as it was then. 
you may find Ewan McCall a bit stagey, or you may find some of the jazz a bit not to your taste, or whatever. But the actual actuality speech is as modern as can be, and this is 50-year-old radio. Look out of number five. Look alive there. Yes, Freeman. Where have you been for that aisle? Arabia? It's not only in the Blackpool Rock line, it's also in the uh, fetch me a bucket of oil for a, for a red tail lamp, for, a, for example. Bucket of red oil. Or where have you been for that oil, Arabia? These are more than witticisms. Yes. These are industrial folklore. Everybody who works at a manual job will immediately recognize the authenticity of such a line. Mm. Our problem, of course, is to create music which is as authentic. McCall and Parker sharing their views in Singing English, a BBC discussion about the making of the radio ballads broadcast in 1962. Just a bloody skivvy, that's me. Along with Peggy Seeger, they couldn't have come from more different backgrounds. Ewan came from dirt poor, really dirt, underground dirt, poor, Salford slum. And I came from a comfortable, um, middle-class, intelligentsia family that always owed money in the summer because my mother didn't teach piano in the summer. <laughs> so, so we went into debt every summer and lived in a really nice, great big house in Washington, D.C. Uh, that wasn't paid for. I mean, I was born in Bournemouth and... I suspect, as a child, spoke a sort of Hampshire, such as there is in Bournemouth. But I know that by going to a secondary school, I had this iron from my speech, and then going into the Navy, ran to Cambridge. Finally, I finished up with received pronunciation standard English, which makes me acceptable in society as a whole. It is an advantage when I'm looking for a job in a bank or wherever, but which I think means that I have lost this vigor of oral usage, whereas in the oral tradition, the one thing you have when people are speaking well is passion and is a complete involvement in the concept, a sort of white heat, really, and the way the words vibrate. Now, Parker and McCall said and wrote a great deal about the oral tradition, the passing of experience and memories down generations through speech and song. It's worth remembering that the ballads were conceived at the beginning of renewed interest in folk music, and many of the songs are still sung in folk clubs today. But Charles Parker had been inspired by celebrated American producer Norman Corwin and his programme, The Lonesome Train. They were his people, he was their man. You couldn't quite tell where the people left off and where Abe Lincoln began. As far as I can make out the trigger for John Axon was an American radio program called The Lonesome Train. And this was a program made during the war, and it's about the progress of Abraham Lincoln's funeral train from Washington to Springfield, Illinois. So it uses elaborate orchestration. It's like a film score, but it also uses solo banjo and Burl Ives as the narrator, singing the narration, which of course in a way is what Ewan does in on accent. Mr. Lincoln's funeral train, traveling the long road from Washington to Baltimore. And it's fascinating in the Charles Parker archive to discover equivalent to my letter to Charles. Charles writing to Norman Corbin saying, your program is amazing. I would love to meet you. It doesn't appear that Charles ever met Corwin, 
But there's no doubt he was impressed by the grand tapestry of music, sound and actors' voices. Would we dare do something like this? He asked Donwan. Well, fundamentally at that time, the features technique was entirely uh, scripted and acted material produced in a studio with a full range of sound effects as, as though it was drama. It was a very different BBC in those days. A decorated wartime naval officer and Cambridge graduate, Barker was prime BBC material. He joined in 1948 and began his radio career in the North American service based in London. He already had a reputation for being somewhat eccentric, but his boss, Peggy Broadhead, now in her 90s, remembers with affection some of his recording escapades. Uh, the BBC had a boat and I think we took part in the Fastnet race and it was one of the rough ones. Well, Fastnet's generally rough. And he came back with the most marvellous recording of um, whether it was his own retching or somebody else's, I don't know. But very few people could hear that recording without feeling terribly sick. In 1953, Parker was promoted to a senior producer's job in the Midlands, where Donnellan was to become a great friend and confidant. At exactly the same moment that Charles arrived in Birmingham, we were presented by the BBC as a region with three Emmy Midget recorders. And for the first time, the individual producer was responsible for using the gear. He put up to the programme head an idea for going out with a territorial armoured division, and he conceived the idea that it should all be done without any interviewing, that he should merely overhear what people were saying, from generals to cooks to lance corporals to officers of any sort. And Charles used to wear the most peculiar clothes at times. He had a tartan cap, I remember, and he probably thought this was an appropriate piece of garb for a BBC producer to approach the army. I would have disagreed myself, being an ex-officer. On his left lapel was uh, the secret weapon of the recording department. It was a rubber mic. So Charles pinned this thing on his lapel, and with his left breast forward, he would advance, and he would try and stick his chest into the uh, conversation. The resulting programme was not a success, but by the time he was recording Railway Workers for the Ballad of John Axon, Parker had developed a real empathy and interviewing skill. Melanie Axon. A lot of people who I spoke to that were railway men that were interviewed at the time for it have said that he had real techniques of how he got people to open up and tell him stories. And uh, he could be quite eccentric at times with some of the things he'd come out with to get them to open up. And he could really change his, his whole person from being one person talking to another person. He was an amazing bloke. The microphone and the tape recorder, far from being an inhibitory agent, becomes, I think, a precipitator of the oral material. Incidentally, it's, I find it a very good thing to sit literally at the feet of people because it helps the position of the microphone. And psychologically, it's a good thing to be lower than them anyway so that they physically dominate the proceedings. I mean, they are simply talking with themselves as they try to really conjure this experience and capture it and communicate it. We hung around the railway sheds oh, for about 10 days recording everybody who worked there until they were absolutely sick of us. 
And we had some hilarious experiences because those night goods trains, they travel fairly fast. And there we were on the footplate, and you're bouncing up and down on these steel plates, you see, trying to manipulate a small tape recorder, which is all right, except when you have to change tapes. Take your spool off, you see, and immediately the wind catches it, and you've got a mile of tape <laughs> running behind you, you know, out of the side of the train, and you're winding furiously to try and get it back on so you don't lose all that you've recorded. Parker and McCall recorded hours and hours of material on reels of quarter-inch tape, and listening to railway workers talking about their lives and about their colleague Axon was only the beginning of a lengthy production process. Years later, Charles was criticised for the time and money spent making radio ballads. But in 1957-58, it seemed like anything was possible. As I listened to them, it became obvious that there was no actor anywhere that could approach the truth of the sound of these speakers. I then made copies of the bits of tape that I thought were relevant, and I pieced them together, leaving blanks, and I say, here we should have a song. He got a lot of that from studying different types of theatre, and he also knew quite a lot of musical songs, which don't tell the folk people, but he did know a lot of those, and he would sing them at home. Uh, he had listened to a lot of classical music in his time. The fact that he didn't read music didn't really make much difference because he could write it. Seeger had something which neither McColl nor Parker had. She could play a wide range of instruments and had learnt musical arrangement and transcription at her mother's knee. I thought I knew more than I did. I didn't know enough, and it wasn't a matter of bluffing my way. It was a matter of where fools fear to tread. That's where I walked in and said, yes, I can do this. We really used a number of musicians uh, who had to adapt as well. And so I would give them something that they were totally unused to doing. And, and like, like Alf Edwards, who would say about something I gave him on the concertina, he'd say, I can't do that, peg tops, but I'll try. <laughs> I had never scored for instruments, ever, ever scored for instruments. So I asked Alf Edwards to help me with that. And he says, well, Mancini will tell you all that. And Mancini, there's a thick book. It's called How to Score for Something or Other, of whatever it is. So Henry Mancini was my Bible for a long time. I was scoring what I knew of classical and folk music and trying to bring the two together. Come all you gallant labouring men, leave your family and your friends, you need it on the job again on the London Yorkshire Highway. With the success of Axon behind them, Parker was asked by his bosses to make another ballad, this time about the building of the London Yorkshire Highway, the beginning of what we know now as the M1. The first program was very emotional. It was a story. Everybody loves stories. And it was a tragic story, and you had to pay homage to a hero. The second one, Song of a Road, was a huge amount of information. Take a heap of gold. Estimated cost, 20 million pounds. And a pinch of time. And Charles was fascinated with sound effects and information. He could stand for hours at the other end of one of these concrete machines, which went. Song of a Road was broadcast in 1959 to varying reviews. Oh, yes. Two legged machines. 
The Observer described it as a near triumph by Axon standards and an absolute marvel by any other. But other critics were less enthusiastic, complaining of the folksy song and number of statistics in the programme. A rift developed between Parker and McCall, who wanted more control. A champion of working men, Ewan felt Song of a Road should have focused more on their stories and that Charles had been lent on by his BBC bosses. Parker was conciliatory, but their differences were evident as they began recording the third radio ballad about the herring fishing industry. I remember when Ewan and he had a hell of an argument once. What the heck was it about? I don't remember. Because Ewan was very left-wing, Charles was right-wing, Ewan was not religious, Charles was. And this argument was really quite, quite something. And Charles walked out with his, the little Emmy machine on his shoulder and he walked down to the end of the pier, bitter cold and the wind was blowing. And he was standing there recording the sea. <laughs> Just this lone figure out on the end of the, holding his hand out and recording the sea. I thought, oh, my God, you know. I wish Charles was back because I, I'd love to talk to him. In the end, singing the fishing was where they felt they got it right and was to establish a methodology for future ballads. All three went to record in East Anglia, which hadn't originally been in the schedule. It was there that they interviewed 80-year-old Sam Lana, and, as Ewan later wrote, they struck pay dirt. Such was his wealth of stories and songs. Up jumped the air in the king of the sea. They recorded 30 hours with him. Unthinkable today. Windy old weather boys, stormy old weather boys. When the wind blow, we'll all go together. He was very ebullient person. He was very upbeat. He loved the attention. And he loved sitting next to me and making his knee nudge mine. And uh, he spoke endlessly about his life. So when Ewan wrote Shoals of Herring, he had not only Sam's words in his head, he had Sam's breathing patterns. He had the vision in his head of what Sam was like, and he also had heard about 50 or 60 of Sam's songs. So he made a song which was based on a folk song. Come all you gallant fishermen that plow the stormy sea, the whole year the fishing grounds of the northern minch and the Norway deeps on the banks and knolls and the North Sea holes where the herring shoals are found. I've since met a number of the musicians who worked on those radio ballads and they all agree it was the most exciting time of their lives too. Ian Campbell was one of those musicians. His group was later at the fore of the folk revival. But when he first met Parker, he was a member of the Clarion Singers a socialist choir in Birmingham. More or less the whole male section of the choir went along to the audition and they all sang pieces from their repertoire. Most of them sang snatches from opera and so on, and unaccompanied. And I knew that the programme was going to be about herring fishermen. So <laughs> and I sang unaccompanied a short blast of an Aberdeen folk song in broad Aberdeenshire dialect. As I come and be Taramirkat, Taramirkat for to fee, I fail and we a wealthy fair, now the barn yards a delgate, Linton Adi, Turin Adi, Linton Adi, Turin Linton Lower and Lopen Lower, and the barn yards a delgate. Ewan leapt up out of his chair and skipped around, <laughs> joining in the chorus. <laughs> John Clark was the studio engineer. He'd worked with Parker before but nothing prepared him for the demands of singing the fishing. 
The first I knew about it was a massive great script. I mean the size of a foundation stone. And it thudded on my desk and I worked through it and I said, oh, speech, singers, music, effects, music, singers, music, effects, singers, music, speech. Oh, Jesus, this is a big bloody thing, you know. Um, and uh, so we arrived, we'd booked a fortnight in the studio, which for a radio production was, you know, an hour in length. It seemed to be horrendously long. But it turned out a week of that was for rehearsal for the musicians and the singers, so that they could actually get into some sort of shape with the music, which was very demanding. And then the studio end of it started, I think, on a Saturday, and we worked through that Saturday weekend and through the whole of the week. We finished the following Sunday. And the first thing that we had to do when we were in the studio was to find the sort of layout which everybody was happy with working. The studio was very, very big, and it had shields between different areas of the musicians, so that the chorus would be over there, and then over there would be the TR-90 player, because this was when we started putting the actual actuality played on the TR-90, you would cue that person in, you would cue them in. Then there was the solo singers over here, then there was me, um, and Charles would be way, way up in the, in the director's box on another floor. You could see him uh, through the window. Of course, I mean, we would work 12 hours, you know, a 12 hour session. <laughs> and then when we all went home at night, he would go back with Ewan to his place, and then they'd carry on working through the night, adapting, changing, rewriting, editing, and, and, and so on. So that sometimes they would come in in the morning shattered, and then Charles would end up striding around in the studio, stamping and tearing his hair and shouting occasionally, getting exasperated. He'd come down from the control room and say, uh, that was take 23, and I'm afraid it didn't work. We've just listened to it. And it would be something like somebody had audibly taken a breath during a silent bar. <laughs> when you think of the technical difficulties, it's a miracle the ballads were ever made at all. With none of today's computerised editing or digital mixing, the TR-90 tape machine was sighted amongst the musicians and singers, playing in, on cue, sound actuality and fragments of speech, sometimes only a few words long. From Charles' point of view, he felt the importance of having the tape there on the floor was because the actuality was such a crucial part of the programme that the artists themselves had to respond to it, not just the voices that were being played, but the man who was pressing the button had to be part of the ensemble. And, I mean, somehow that worked. I think the trickiest thing that we did in that programme was the storm sequencing. Without a good breeze when we finished hauling, when he dished out the six o'clock weather forecast, we had then got it very bad where we were in the North Sea. It was based on the Beaufort scale. There were little verses coming in where sort of wind force seven, wind force seven, thirty, dee, 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 dee. Now it's blowing like the devil. Broken waves pile up in heaps. Foaming tops are blown in streaks. Gale force eight, gale force eight. There was one point where Charles said, we need the banjo here. Dun, da, da, dun, da, dun, da, that single string playing, and he said, do something there, and I had to come and bang. Terrifying. There were bits of actuality coming in, played over that music, and a third element woven in was recordings of auctioneers 
on the keys. It was very fast, it was very furious, and at the end of each take, we'd sort of hold it, the music would die, I'd fade them after fader, and they'd all look up at Giles in the gallery, and he'd say, yes, very nice, that's nice. I think we'll need another one, though, you know. <laughs> so we'd be at it again. We finished the singing the fishing one Saturday night, and we all stood around as children listening to it. A great cheer went up at the end of it, and everybody bugged each other and said, that's it, that's it, we've done it. You know, it's a winner. And done it they had. In 1960, Singing the Fishing won the most coveted radio award of all, the Pre-Italia. What shall it profit a fisherman To gain a catch and lose his span In the salt sea water To win a crown at every pull If his heart has stopped and his lungs are full of the salt sea water. Despite the success of seeing the fishing, the future of the balance was far from secure. There were mutterings in the BBC corridors of power about the cost, both in time and money. Charles was under increasing pressure to produce cheaper programmes. By now, Charles was doing most of the tape editing himself. There are stories of him breaking into the BBC to edit throughout the night, although it was probably more a case of being on good terms with the commissionaire who let him in. He'd been taught the skill of splicing tape by studio engineer Mary Baker, who died some years ago. She'd been working with him since Axon, when producers weren't allowed to do their own editing. Now, compiling the fourth ballad, The Big Hewer, about coal miners, Parker was becoming more and more influenced by McColl's political views, and a sympathy for the hardships of the working communities he recorded. I don't think he was particularly political when I began uh, working with him, but he became increasingly impressed by what the actuality people were saying. It really was a revelation to him. The silence in the pit, it's, it's like infinity or, or the bottom of the ocean. It's, it's peaceful, and yet it's sometimes frightening. You could be driven to panic with it, I think. You've never known absolute blackness. Always there's stars at night and there's always a moon, but there there's nothing. No one could hear those people speak without your hair standing on end. In the world where a man is always a stranger, where the miner works and lives with danger. You see, you've got the smells and you've got your look and you, you would put your hands behind you and you'd feel the rough surface of the stone. You see, you'd feel the dust and the props, the bark that was on the props. And you used to visualize things happening in the blackness is the place where the big earns his pay. Go down. The pressure continued, and Parker had less and less time to make the programmes he wanted to. After the big hewer came the body blow about polio sufferers. Instead of months, Charles was given only weeks. There were just five interviewees, and much less time for McCall and Seeger to work on the songs and music. 
With the cooperation of the Polio Research Fund, we present The Body Blow. It's widely thought that this is the least successful of the radio ballads, but lecturer and programme maker Andy Cartwright believes that The Body Blow and On the Edge, about teenagers, are brilliant examples of editing. In the later ballads, what I think made them really experiment a little bit more with the editing techniques is the fact that when the announcer says at the start, we can restore the voice to the wholesome effect. On the battle with poliomyelitis fought by five people, by Dutchy Holland, to whose machine-chopped speech the tape recorder, with the editing that it makes possible, can restore wholeness. We can still do many things that we used to do in the old days. So even though his voice, because of a track optomy, is he can only speak on the in, I think the incoming phrase of the actual beat of the iron lung, they can edit it to wholeness again. We have a saying in this ward that we live dangerously, and by golly you do. But towards the end of it, we lose that. They say we go back, it's unedited, and suddenly he says, you know, if somebody here switches the electric meter off. Then goes your ear supply. And then everybody and then you actually see what the editing job they actually had to do. They hunt for another shilling. See, we can't afford to have a quarterly meter here. It's a very long process, and one has to be very careful. You cannot do it quickly, because almost certainly if you do it in haste, you destroy the actuality. You do then start to manipulate it in the pejorative sense, impose your will upon it, whereas it's really the other way round. The genius of the language is imposing its will on you when one handles a tape recorder yes. in this way. Um, one is sort of going through the actuality to reveal the reality of the situation. And it's like setting the piece of actuality like a, a sort of jewel. I don't want to be too lyrical about this. So that it reveals every facet of itself and is set in the music like a jewel in a ring. My slight criticism of the editing was sometimes was too much of it. Radio feature maker Piers Plowright. I don't want to sound patronising now, but you've got to give people their space. And I don't think that Parker and McCall did always give people their space. They became sounds in the great orchestra of their minds. What Charles Parker would have done with the digital possibilities available to him now, I don't know. Would it have helped him or not? I think there is a point at which tinkering is, is pointless. I think they are gradually evolving, and I think even though the, the more sort of, well, I'd call it experimental <laughs> editing within the body blow and on the edge, where they're intercutting voices, you know, the, the very, very quickly, but so it doesn't really, in a sense, make too much sense, but you get a sense, in, particularly in the on, on the edge of the confusion of teenage life, and ending in that cry of the girl, which is never ever explained within the context of the programme at all. There's this crying which then goes into echo... children of a troubled world the tale of a search and of a long journey on the edge was a very strange one we should have used the music that the teenagers were listening to or we should at least have used some of it if i was to do on the edge now i would do it very differently in 2006 
independent producer John Leonard made a series of six new radio ballads for BBC Radio 2. The subjects were varied and very different from the originals. Steelworkers to shipbuilders, Northern Ireland to AIDS, fairgrounds to fox hunting. Another programme that I wanted to do but couldn't do and that was the programme talking to young people who had just left school and were on the edge of going into being adults. And I thought, why don't we go out and ask exactly the same questions as Charles and Ewan had asked and see if we got different answers. And of course, because of new regulations, you can't go and interview people who are 15 without someone being accompanying them. And so we found that when we were going to schools, they were bringing their prize pupils and sitting in the room with them and they weren't being honest. But how will the original radio ballads touch the lives of future generations? In the Charles Parker archive at Birmingham Central Library, there are thousands of hours of Parker's recordings and hundreds of files of written material. The library's outreach team go into schools like Holy Trinity and Small Heath, playing extracts from the ballads and other Parker recordings as a springboard for young people working on their own oral history projects. Before we finish, what we want to do is just play you a couple of other oral history recordings that have had have been interpreted in some way. So you know, like for this project, you're thinking about you might do these oral histories and then you might um, put them with some drama work or you might put them with some images. So it's just kind of thinking about different ways you can do that. And people have done that in the past. So what we're going to listen to now are called radio ballads that were recorded by Charles Parker in the 1960s, 50s, 60s. One of them is of teenagers talking at that time, so we're going to show you, listen to a little snippet of that. You'll just hear from when you listen to it that they've done different things with it and it might give you some ideas as to the kind of things that you could do with what um, the oral histories that you record. kept a diary, a little book which I buy every year, and I was looking through it the other day and I noticed on one of the pages I'd written, I hate daddy. Please, miss. Please, sir. Please, miss. Please, sir. Goodbye. Us as kids, like, we aren't about doing oral history and that, but I think people sitting there listening to it for ages, some of us could find it boring, so the music and that breaking up keeps us interested and it makes us want to know more kind of things. We just want to get involved in the project really to, uh, you know, experience and have a look at what history was like because it's always good to know what's happened. And this gives us a chance to kind of understand where they're coming from. And maybe in a few years' time, like, there'll be a role reversal where we'll be the same with our children and grandchildren. It's because, like, you can't explain who you are unless you know, like, how you are that person. I feel sure that Charles Parker would have approved. Here's an extract from his 15-minute talks programme, The Tape Recorder and the Oral Tradition, broadcast in 1971. I've been struck very much by a feeling that lecturers, that teachers, are looking for a new source of inspiration, of discipline, for the teaching of English. Whenever one opens up the tape recorder to them, the power of the machine and the fact that in the streets outside, in the workshops all around them, there is this living English which they can handle and understand and analyse, one can learn from this the way to teach oral English. The last of the radio ballads, The Travelling People, was broadcast in 1964. It gave a voice to the gypsy and traveller communities, and in many ways it was the most political. By then, Charles, after much soul-searching, had abandoned his religious beliefs for Ewan's Marxist views. 
The Travelling People is the only radio ballad in which Charles's voice is heard, when he challenges a city alderman's suggestion that travellers who won't conform to society's rules should be exterminated. But there are some I can do nothing with whatever. Then doesn't the time arise in one's mind when one has to say, all right, one has to exterminate the impossibles. And he can't write. Well, somebody said something incredibly controversial and it needed to be challenged, but leaving his voice in makes the ending of that final radio ballad so dramatic, in a sense. Who is it next? The gypsies, the tinkers, the Jews, the coloured men? I don't accept that, really, on these particular I don't people. Think exterminates a terrible way. You can't really mean that. Why not? Whether the ballads ran out of steam or merely cost too much to make is a matter for conjecture. At the time, however, the travelling people caused some debate, as in this discussion panel on a BBC arts programme. This I thought was good. Edward Lucy Smith. I thought that what was in the programme, what it was built of, came in two very different sorts and qualities. The documentary material was often absolutely riveting, the actual interviews. I thought the ballads often rang very false. Carl Miller. Well, I enjoyed the programme. I had some reservations. A ballad usually has a narrative element, especially if it's a long thing, and there wasn't any narrative here. It was a kind of potpourri of voices and songs. There was a bit too much emotion here, not enough discrimination. I think part of the point is the gypsies are now worse treated. Come on, he says, get a move on. Shift on, he says, don't want you on here, on my beat. So my husband says, look, he says, sorry, he said, let me stay. He said, my wife is going to have a baby. No, it don't matter about that. He says, you get off. They made my husband move, and my baby was born going along, and my husband stayed in the road, my baby was born on the crossroads in my caravan. The horse was an harness, and we was travelling along the road, and the policeman was following us behind, drumming us off, and the child was born, born on the crossroads. Born in the middle of the afternoon In a horse-drawn wagon on the old A5 but hearing the travelling people again recently, Gillian Reynolds believes it's still as relevant today. You can't stop here, the policeman said. A graduate student from Australia came to see me. And it was really raining outside. And she brought her children with her. And they were soaked, and I was soaked going out to bring them in out of the rain. So they played on my hearth rug. And the fire blazed up. And we listened together to the traveling people. And without any prompting and quite spontaneously, the tears coursed down our cheeks because the traveling people is the one, I think, that stands the test of time. The herring have gone from the sea. The mines are closed. Motorways are different now. Move along, get along, move along, get along, go. Move, shift. But the traveling people tells of things you would never hear and it tells them to you in a way you just cannot resist. Your emotions crumble, your prejudices go and you are there with people who you would never know otherwise. It was a wagon and horse and we were on the road when I was born. We travelled from pillar to post. Well, I meant to say I've been doing it all my life for 15 years. This is a paragraph from a letter that Charles wrote to me at the time. Um, Sentence of death has now officially been passed upon the radio ballads. No more money, no more faith in the formula, in quotes. 
the bland bastards. Still, we've had a good run, and I strongly suspect that from their point of view, it's now too late. The damage has been done. The radio ballads exist, unquote. On December 31st, 1972, Charles Parker was prematurely retired from the BBC. There were those who thought it was political, and a scurrilous underground record was produced supporting his case. This is McKinsey's cost-benefit analysis performance in memory of the late Charles Parker. Daddy, what, what did you do when Charlie Parker was being sacked? He'd fallen victim to the BBC reorganisation of the 1970s, but there was widespread sympathy for him and protests, and even a question was asked in the Commons. Gillian Reynolds. He rang me up and said, um, you've written nice things about my programmes. I'm about to be sacked. And I said, oh, oh, good heavens, are you really? And he said it was all political. And I could see that there were various economic arguments to be made for the sacking. But I rang up the Director General and I listened to... Um, this very reasoned argument about why the BBC could no longer afford the lavish amount of resources that were going to this one producer. Jock Gallagher was Charles's boss, the then new network editor of the Midland region. Parker was his responsibility, as he explained in an edition of Radio Lives some 20 years ago. Do you think I slept for weeks? Do you think I didn't feel sick? Do you think I didn't know what was going on? Do you think I didn't know that I was actually tampering with the fabric of broadcasting as it had gone before me? I was a brand new manager. I was terrified half of the time. But don't tell me that I was subjected to political pressures or higher management pressures even. I mean, if anything, that was one of the nightmares. There was no bugger upstairs saying, this is what we want, do it this way. It was all airy-fairy. It's your problem, old chap. And I said, but this man has won you the Italia Prize. This man is your best documentary maker. He's no argument about that, none at all, none at all. He said, it's just that we can't afford it anymore. All of it made sense. And then you hear the other side of the story, which was it was all political. Charles is sacked for his left-wing tendencies. I think the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. The wireless had moved on a bit, and in fact... The need to give the common man the voice, which I think had spurned Charles on in the beginning, was no longer necessary because the ordinary man was finding his own ways of elbowing his way onto the wires because he could just ring up. John Axon, he was all alone there on the engine side. The train, it reached the hilltop and began the downhill ride. The sun, it was still shining. Charles turned to political theatre in Birmingham. Dave Rogers of Banner. By the time we were working with Charlie, he was political. He was passionately political. You know, he was a socialist. And so there was no problem about Banner being a socialist theatre company called ourselves Banner Theatre, i.e. trade union banner, you know, banner as a kind of voice of uh, oppressed communities. That wasn't in the radio ballads in the same way, I don't think, that politics, which is strange because Ewan was clearly a highly politicised person. 
Banner continues with its political performances today. It was freezing cold um, and the, the rain was just um, lashing down whilst they were cockle picking and they were stranded. Now highlighting the plight of refugees and other marginalised communities. Came from Fujing on the south coast of China. Because we use actuality now centrally, video footage centrally to what we do. We use their stories as kind of central building blocks. And like the radio ballads, we intertwine video footage with music and song and sound effects. Steal away, steal away. Haven't got long to stay it's difficult to quantify the legacy of the radio ballads, but three of them, Singing the Fishing, The Fight Game and The Big Hewer, were made into television programmes by Charles's old BBC ally, Philip Donnellan. TV producer Andrew Johnston, however, believes their influence goes much deeper. The radio ballads at their best are just extraordinary, I think. I mean, things like the fight game training sequence or going down the pit in The Big Hewer, they're operatic, they're very immediate and punchy. They use sound effects incredibly well. And in television, in filmmaking, you can draw on images as well. With a steam locomotive, you create the power, you maintain the power, and you control the power. I went to Charles Parker's funeral and it, it was a very powerful event, not just because this man had died ahead of his time, but I think because of the way he'd been treated, there was an element of anger. And I remember this miner's leader from Scotland stood up and addressed the coffin and said, in effect, farewell, Charles, you were not an easy man, but the world has too many easy men. He was lowered into the ground and it was, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. It really was very, very emotional. We need more people like that. He, he carried the conscience for a lot of us. By his deeds you shall know him. By the work of his hands. By the friends who will mourn him. By the love that he bore. By the gift of his courage. And the life that he On the platform at Chapel Lanlefrith, I feel a little like the man who comes here every year on the day and the hour of the accident. No one knows who he is, but on the day the plaque was unveiled, there he was, in the middle of the silence of remembrance. In memory of driver John Axon, GC.
George Cross and guard John Creamer who gave their lives in the line of duty at this station 9th of February 1957. John Exon was a railway man to steam trains born and bred. He was an engine driver at Edgeley Loco he was a man of courage and served the iron way. He gave his life upon the track one February day. 